All right. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach Lee, one of the pastors here. Excited to be with you this morning as we continue in the book of Romans. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Let me tell you where we are thus far in Romans. In Romans chapter 1, you get what is called the condemnation of the Gentile. What the Apostle Paul is going to do is he's going to say, even for those that don't have a Bible, even for those unlike the Jews who don't have the Old Testament, they still stand condemned under the wrath of God because they still do by nature what they know to be wrong. That's chapter 1, according to Paul. What the Apostle Paul is going to say in chapter 1 is really there's no such thing as an atheist, that everybody realizes that things have been created and therefore there is a creator. Or as Leibniz would ask the question, why is there something rather than nothing? But then the Apostle Paul moves to say, not only does everybody know that there's a creator by what's been made, but that there is some intrinsic sense of morality within all people that realize certain things are wrong, okay? So of every culture that's ever arisen, you have certain laws that don't allow people to murder whoever they want, whenever they want. And of every culture that's ever arisen, we realize that things like stealing is wrong. Even thieves don't like to be stolen from. Even pirates have a pirate code that they have to keep, all right? And so in chapter 1, you get the condemnation of the Gentile, where the Apostle Paul is going to say that there's enough knowledge of God in nature to damn you, but not enough knowledge of God in nature to save you. That's chapter 1. In chapter 2, the Apostle Paul switches gears, and you get the condemnation of the Jew, okay? What the Apostle Paul is going to say in chapter 2 is, though you Jews have the Bible, you have the Old Testament, you have the Mosaic Law, it doesn't do you much good because you can't keep it. So what Paul is doing is he's shutting up all of humanity under sin in chapters 1 and 2 and the first half of chapter 3 so that in chapter 3 he can finally give us the good news of the gospel, that we need Jesus and that we cannot be okay before God without Christ. That's what Paul's working up to in his argument. And so today we're going to be in chapter 2. Let me pray for us before we get into the text. Father, I thank you that you uh, are good uh, and in you is light and there's no darkness at all. I thank you that you love us, that you care for us. I thank you that you're uh, mighty and powerful and far above us and beyond our comprehension, and yet you've sent Christ, God in the flesh, that we might better know who you are. And so we thank you for that. I pray for guidance as we go through this text. I pray against misunderstanding, and we love you, and we ask all this in Christ's name. All right, before I get into the text, I want to tell you a little story. So my dad, all, all of a sudden, sometimes we'll be eating dinner, and my dad will tell us some story from his childhood or from growing up or something like that. And a lot of times, they're really interesting stories or they're cool stories, and we're always surprised that he hasn't told us that story before then. So one day, we're sitting down having dinner, and he goes, did I ever tell you the time I was working at a bank, and it got robbed, and I chased the guy down by the highway and tackled him? And we're like, that's a great story. Where was that when I was six? I wanted that story. That's a good story. Another time, we were sitting down for dinner, and he goes, did you know when we were kids and we'd play baseball? If we missed a catch or fumbled the ball, our coaches would shoot us with a BB gun. I thought, y'all, we're probably a pretty good baseball team. We should do that. All right, we should do that. That really increases uh, youth performance when they're shot with BB guns. And so the other day, we were sitting down, and he was telling us this story. He said, when I was younger, what we used to do in high school, right, when, the, when it was summer break and we didn't have to go to school, is we would go down to Mexico. Now, remember, this was a uh, very different Mexico back then, a little bit uh, more of a pre-cartel Mexico, and so it was a little safer. And so he said, what we would do in high school is we'd get a bunch of guys, and we would go down to Mexico, and we would haul watermelons for the summer to make a whopping $3 an hour, okay? So he and his buddies would get in a car, drive down to Mexico as some teenagers, and all day they would haul watermelons to make money, okay? 
and they don't have water. If, if a watermelon breaks, you just eat that. That's your water, and you keep going. It's one of those stories about going to school uphill both ways in the snow kind of thing. And so he's telling us this story, and he said, so one day we're going out there to haul watermelons, and uh, there was a group of guys from Mexico, some Hispanic guys that would go in front of us, and they would cut the watermelons, and then we would take them, and we would throw them in the truck. And he said that about 7 a.m., one of those guys got bit by a rattlesnake. So then that guy that gets bit by a rattlesnake takes off running, which you're not supposed to do, okay? If you have venom in your blood, you don't pump it through your body faster. So he takes off running. His buddies grab him. They put him in the back of the truck. They give him some water. They cool him down. They're like, hey, it's going to be all right. He said, by 9 a.m., that guy was dead. And I said, what? Is that, is that your whole story? What happened? He said, what are we supposed to do? We're teenagers. We don't speak Spanish. So he just sat in the truck for eight hours while we threw watermelons. And I was like, that is the weirdest story you've ever told me. It has no resolution, okay? Now, I tell you that story for two reasons. Number one, it lets you see why I'm so messed up. Number two, I'm kidding. My dad's in here today. Number two, here's the point I want to make with that story. Is that guy somehow protected against that rattlesnake bite because of his ethnicity? Can he say, hey, I'm from, I'm from Mexico. We're, we're in Mexico. This is a, a Mexican rattlesnake. So somehow this poison will not affect me as much as if it bit one of these high school gringos, right? Does that work? No, you see, that rattlesnake's bite is just as venomous regardless of ethnicity. Now, here's why I tell you that. What's going to happen in chapter 2 are those who are Jewish are going to say, essentially, that I'm okay before God because of my ethnicity, because of my Jewishness, because God made a covenant with me, despite the fact that the covenant's clear that if I don't keep it, I get kicked out. Because I have the Mosaic law, God and I are cool. And what the Apostle Paul is going to say is, no, when that snake bites, it doesn't care of your ethnicity, it doesn't care of your lineage. What it cares about is whether or not you have broken God's law. So that's what the Apostle Paul is going to do here in chapter 2. Now, before we get into verse 6, I want you to see the structure of this text. We've got a little slide we're going to put up so you can see the the structure of the text that we're going through today, verses 6 through 11. Uh, What you're going to see in this text, this is what's called a chiasm. Some people say chiasm or chiasmus. What is a chiasm? A chiasm follows this kind of pattern where it goes A, B, C, C, B, A, or A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A, or A, B, B, A. It's where there's this thought, and then it moves over into some other subjects and then goes back to the thought. It looks kind of like an X in shape, which is why it's called a chiasm, because the Greek letter chi or chi looks like an X. So I'll give you an example before we look at this. If I said, my name is Zach, I'm a man, I'm a man, my name is Zach. That's a chiasm. My name is Zach is the A, and me being a man is the B. So I went A, B, B, A. Well, that's what this text does, okay? What you're going to see is in verse 6, it's going to say that God judges impartially. Verse 7, it's going to say he rewards the righteous. In verse 8, he condemns the unrighteous. And then it's going to do the exact opposite. It's going to say in verse 9, he condemns the unrighteous. In verse 10, he rewards the righteous. And then in verse 11, God judges impartially. So the structure of this text is very easy to follow. What the text actually means is a bit more difficult. So with that in mind, let's get into verse 6. Verse 6. He, that's God, will render to each one. Notice that you don't get judged as a team. You don't get judged as a group. That we will all, as the Bible says, give an account before God for all the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. He, that's God, will render to each one according to his what? His works. Paul gets this from not only other, not only does Paul say this elsewhere in the New Testament, but he gets this from the Old Testament, Proverbs 24, 12, and will he not repay man according to his work? Psalm 62, 12, for you will render a man according to his work, okay? So here's my question for you. 
The Bible just said that we're going to be judged according to our works. What do we do with that? Does that stress you out, oh Protestants? It stresses me out. I'm a Luther guy. I'm a Calvin guy. Any talk of works makes my blood boil, okay? So what do we do with this text? The fact that the Bible just said that we're going to be judged according to our works. Is the solution to become Catholic? No, that's never the solution, okay? The Bible does this at several places. What do we do with the fact that in some places in Romans, Paul will say that you're justified by faith alone, but then in Romans 2, he'll say that you're judged according to your works. In fact, in verse 13, he's going to say it's not the hearers of the law who are justified, but the doers of the law who are justified. And it's not just Paul that does this. We see this in James 2. Let me show you two verses and show you how they contrast. First, Romans 3.28, which we're going to throw up on the screen, says this, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Okay, so we're justified by faith alone, faith and not works of the law. But then look at James 2.24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Does that stress you out? What do we do? What do we do? Is there some sort of contradiction in God's Word? Does that mean we're saved by works and faith? How are we supposed to understand this? Why does Paul say you're saved by faith alone and James says you're not saved by faith alone? Is it a contradiction? Listen, it's not a contradiction because they're talking about different things. They have two totally different contexts. When Paul is writing, he's writing against those that think that they're going to be saved because they're following Old Testament Mosaic law. And his response to them is you're not saved by following Old Testament Mosaic law. You're saved by faith in Christ. James is dealing with something super different. James is dealing with people who simply say that they have faith, though it has no legs on it. It doesn't actually transform their life. And he's condemning them for not really having faith, right? What what James is going to say is, okay, you have faith. What does that mean? You believe in monotheism? You say God is one? Great. The demons believe that. You say you have faith because you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Great. The devil believes that. That's not what makes you a Christian. What he's going to say is just because you have this mental faith, if it hasn't affected your life, you don't really have faith. So the issue here in chapter 2, like with James, is not that you're saved by faith plus works or something like that. They're dealing with different issues, and so we have to understand them in their different contexts. Let me give you a few examples. If I'm talking to a group of kids and I say, y'all shouldn't hit each other, and then I'm talking to a group of football players and I say, y'all should hit each other, have I contradicted myself? Well, no, because the contexts are super different. Kids, I don't want them hitting each other. Linebackers, I do. Or if I'm talking to a group of uh, sommeliers or wine connoisseurs, and I say, you guys should try a bunch of different wines. But then I'm in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and I say, you guys should not try a bunch of different wines. I'm not contradicting myself because the contexts are super different. We have to keep in mind what the Apostle Paul is saying. What the Bible teaches is that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, which always results in good works. You're saved by grace and that it's a gift. It's something Christ purchased for you. It's not something you can purchase. You can't afford that price tag. It's received by faith alone. That's how you get the grace. But once you have, it always produces a life change. It always shows itself externally. So you're not saved by the works. You're saved by faith in Christ alone, but that kind of faith always has legs on it. It always produces a life change. I'll give you a few examples. If I come up to you and I say, I'm Carl Brower, how do you know that I'm lying? Because I have hair, right? (laughs) Or if I come up to you and I say, I'm Tim Hollis, how do you know that I'm lying? Because I'm not 4'11", right? (laughs) I'm just getting him back because he got me in theological equipping, so I'm just throwing it back. One's actions show whether or not someone really has faith, okay? If you're a good tree, how do you know that a tree is good? You look at its fruit, 
You see that if an apple tree is producing healthy and good apples, it must be a healthy apple tree. If there's a tree producing no fruit or the fruit that it produces is bad, it's moldy or it has worms in it or something like that, you know that there's something wrong with the tree. So theologically, we need to realize that the idea that we're going to be judged according to our works is not incompatible with the fact that we are justified by faith alone. In fact, if you find yourself thinking, maybe I'm not really a good tree, the solution is not to go pick up a bunch of fruit on the ground and hope that God will declare you to be a good tree. The solution is to go before God and say, I am a bad tree and I need forgiveness in Christ, and He will make you a good tree, and you will naturally produce good fruit. Let me give you a few quotes on this topic from uh, some of the Reformers. John Calvin says this, it is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Meaning, you're saved by faith alone, period. You can't earn it. But true saving faith is never alone. True saving faith looks different in your life. True saving faith affects everything else. Martin Luther said, idle faith is not justifying faith. He also said this, I think this is good, works are necessary for salvation, but do not cause salvation in that faith alone gives life. What works are for Protestants, and I believe this is the biblical position, is that works are evidences of whether or not you've trusted Christ. I can look at your actions. I can't read the heart. We can't read people's hearts, but I can read the actions, and the actions exposes wicked or righteous hearts, okay? So we can look at those actions. That's what it means to be uh, judged according to our works. Let me give you another, another thing here. This is from a guy named Heinrich Bullinger. He was a Swiss reformer during the Reformation, and here's the title of his book. Okay, when we write books today, we have short titles, hop on pop, something like that. Here's his title for his book about justification. Ready? It's great. The grace of God that justifies us for the sake of Christ through faith alone, without good works, while faith meanwhile abounds in good works. Isn't that a great book title? Doesn't that sound like a page turner? (laughs) The grace of God that justifies us for the sake of Christ through faith alone, without good works, while faith meanwhile abounds in good works. Now, Another thing to keep in mind in chapter 2 of Romans is that Paul is still building his argument. Paul is still building his argument. He is going to say in chapter 2 that if you keep the law, you're saved. If you don't keep the law, you're condemned. But by the time he gets to chapter 3, he's going to say, oh, and by the way, nobody keeps the law except Christ. Nobody keeps the law. So keep that in mind. When, When this letter would have originally been delivered, they would have read it in its entirety to the church. They weren't just given Romans 2 so that they would take that off into some weird workspace religion. Paul is building an argument, so you have to keep in mind there is an element to what he's saying that is hypothetical that he's going to shoot down in chapter 3. If you were to keep the law, you would be saved. Chapter 3, nobody keeps the law. There's none righteous, no, not one, none who seeks for God, etc. Now, everything I just said is true theologically, but nothing I just said is the point of these verses. Nothing I just said is the point of these verses, verses 6 through 11. I just had to say that so you wouldn't freak out and try to earn your salvation. What is Paul doing in talking about being judged by works in verses 6 through 11? All he's simply trying to do in this context is to show Jews that they can't trust in the fact that they simply have the law or they're Jewish for their salvation. What he's doing is he showed that the Gentiles, those without the Bible, they're condemned because they do by nature what they know to be wrong. But even those of you who have the Bible, he's saying, still can't keep it, still can't keep God's law. What good does it do you to have the law, which all you do is? is break. That's his whole point in talking about being judged according to works. His whole point in this very specific narrow context, he's not trying to build out a full-fledged doctrine of salvation yet right here. He's simply trying to say for those of you thinking that you're in simply because you're Jewish, simply because your last name is Goldstein or Rosenberg, that is not enough. That God will judge us based upon whether or not we have faith as evidenced by our works. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, 
which always results in good works. Everybody with me so far? Clear as mud? Verse 7. Verse 7. 7 through 8. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, literally in Greek it says selfish ambition, and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Verses 7 through 8 simply elaborate on what it means to be judged according to your works. Let me say it this way. There's a lot of, way that you, a lot of different ways that you can divide up humanity, okay? So Jeff said a few weeks ago that there's only two kinds of people in the world, people who like lubies and people who don't, okay? I'm one of those guys who doesn't really like it, okay? It's great to be in a restaurant with carpet on the floor that retains all those smells and rolly chairs and, you know, hospital jello, but I don't really love that. I'm not a big Luann platter guy, okay? But you can divide the world into a bunch of different ways. You can say the world's divided into two kinds of people, people who like camping and people who don't. Do you think I like camping or no? I don't like camping. Why? Because the whole reason that I went to college and pay taxes is so I don't have to sleep outside. That's why I did that. So when someone's like, hey, why don't you come camping with us? You can get a terrible night's sleep and wake up covered in spiders and it'll be freezing. I always think to myself, no, thank you. I'll sleep in my nice warm bed and watch camping on TV, okay? Uh, you can divide the world into two kinds of people. There are people that like Justin Bieber and people who don't. Now, I happen to be of the opinion that he has a, quote, very punchable face, okay? But there are other people that like him, what are called believers, all right? And they like him. Well, what the Apostle Paul is doing here in verses 7 through 8 is he's saying this, you can divide everybody up into one of two kinds of people, Christians and non-Christians. That's what he's doing. You can divide everybody by looking at their works, which evidences their faith, up into one of two kinds of people, Christians or non-Christians. Now, that's unique. For Jews, the primary way a Jew would have divided people is Jew or Gentile. The primary designation between different kinds of people was racial, was physical. But for the Apostle Paul, it's spiritual. Everybody fits into one of two categories, orthodox, historical, Bible-loving believer in Jesus, or other. That's it. Those are the only two categories. Anytime I meet somebody and they say that they're not a Christian, but they're a very spiritual person, I like to inform them that that spirit they are following is a demon. Because unless it's the Holy Spirit, it's not spiritual. There's only two kinds of people. And so the Apostle Paul is going to talk about two kinds of people, two kinds of lifestyles, and two kinds of results. Let's start with the Christian in verse 7. To those who by patience in well-doing. Notice, for the Apostle Paul, the primary evidence of a Christian life, the primary attribute of a Christian is patience in well-doing. What does that mean? Here's what it means. You persevere. If you don't persevere to the end, you will not be saved. But if you're really saved, you will persevere to the end. That's what we believe about salvation, okay? The primary evidence of the Christian life is, is there a continued following of Jesus? Even when you fall, even when you blow it, even when you commit some horrendous sin, even when you're struggling for a long season with a particular sin, is your highest desire to hate your sin, to love Jesus, and to follow after Him and carry your cross? Because this text is saying that's the primary attribute of the Christian life. That's what it means to, be, to have patience in well-doing. It means that you are steadfast in walking in righteousness and steadfast in walking in obedience. Now, look what they're seeking after in verse 7. To those who by patience and well-doing, Christian persistence, if you will, seek for glory and honor and immortality. Let me explain what this means. This doesn't mean that they're trying to puff themselves up when it talks about them seeking for honor. It doesn't mean they're saying, look at me, I'm so great, I'm going to get a bunch of Twitter followers, I'm awesome, let me puff myself up. That's not the idea. The idea is that they're seeking those things by seeking after God. That's the idea. God gives those things. If you seek your own honor, God shoots you down. If you seek God's honor, He also lifts you up. 
This is why John Piper is so helpful. Does everyone in here know who John Piper is? He's a pastor, was a pastor, retired now, and uh, he's written a lot of really good things, but here's his kind of central hot topic, soapbox issue. He didn't invent this, but he made it really popular in our generation. It's this idea that your goal in finding your own happiness is also something you get by following Christ. Let me say it this way. Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody's seeking for joy. No matter who you are, you're seeking that. Why do you get married? Because you think it will bring you more happiness than not getting married. Why do you have kids? Because you think that will bring you more happiness than not having kids. Why do you want to make more money? Because you think that will bring you more happiness than not making money. Why do you want a better job? Because you think that will bring you more happiness than not having that job. The fundamental condition of the human heart is to seek our own joy. It is to seek our own happiness. In fact, even the person who commits suicide is doing what they think to be best. They think whatever will bring them the most joy is on the other side of that, uh, of, of the other side of death than the life that they're going through now. There's a fundamental condition of the human heart that always seeks after joy. And here's what's so radical. If you will simply seek Christ, you also get the joy that you're looking for. That your goal and God's goal in that sense are not at odds. If I will seek Christ, which is the highest thing, the only thing that can satisfy, I will naturally receive the joy that I'm looking for. But if I go looking for that joy apart from Christ, I will get neither. I will get neither. You see, the greatest thing from God's perspective is His glory, and the thing we're all seeking is our own joy. By giving God glory, you also secondarily receive the joy that you're looking for. He is our joy. He is our reward. He is our happiness. So what's so interesting is by simply seeking Christ, you also get joy. But if you seek anything else, you get neither. You get neither Christ nor your own joy. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying here is by you giving God glory, by you following Christ, guess what it also produces for you? Honor and glory and immortality and the reward of those that are Christians, eternal life. Meaning, new heavens, new earth, resurrected bodies, no more pain, no more sickness, no more awfulness, only worshiping God. Everything is awesome and perfect. That's verse 7. Verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking, notice the primary attribute here of the non-Christian is selfishness. It's being self-seeking. Everything you do in life is a decision that you either make for God or for yourself. The primary heart disposition of the non-Christian is self-seeking, is selfishness. This is my life. This is my body. This is my family. This is what I want. This is my opinion. Don't tell me what to do. I want to be happy, and I will find it in me. That is the primary heart disposition of the non-Christian, of the lost person. But for those who are self-seeking, that's how Paul typifies them. For Christians, they persevere in righteousness. For non-Christians, they love and pursue, and their highest desire is self. Their highest desire is self. Now, here's what's so funny about that. When you try to seek Christ, you also get joy. When you try to seek joy without Christ, you get neither. And so what I want to do is I want to read you a little quote, okay? Don't write this down. We're not going to put it on the screen. I just want you to, to hear it. It's written by a theologian from the Middle Ages named St. Bernard, not Bernard, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, and he's writing about how the lost sinful heart is never satisfied apart from Christ. And here's what he says. It is always natural for every rational being to desire what it sees to be finer and to direct its energies toward it. It is never satisfied with anything which lacks what it judges it should have. For example, a man who has a beautiful wife looks at a lovelier woman with a discontented eye or mind. He who is very rich envies a richer man. Today you see many men who already have great wealth and possessions still laboring day by day to add one field to another and to extend their boundaries. And what of men in high positions? Do we not see them striving with all their might to reach still higher positions? 
Their ambition is never satisfied. There is no end to it all because the highest and the best is not to be found in any of these things. If a man cannot be at peace until he has the highest and the best, is it surprising that he is not content with inferior things? It is folly and extreme madness always to be longing for things which cannot only never satisfy, but cannot even blunt the appetite. However much you may have of such things, you still desire what you have not yet attained. You are always restlessly sighing after what is missing. When the wandering mind is always rushing about in empty effort among the various and deceptive delights of the world, it grows weary and remains dissatisfied. That man is always anxiously wanting what he has not got rather than enjoying what he has. For who can have everything? That little which a man obtains by all his effort he possesses in fear. He does not know what he will lose and when. That's the life apart from Christ. You're desiring your own happiness, but it can never be fulfilled apart from Him. He is your happiness. Christ is your treasure. He is the reward. It's not even heaven or these other things. It's Him. Your reward is in a triune God. That's your reward. But if you seek your own joy apart from that, you're never satisfied. Why does the the guy addicted to drugs have to always search for the next high? Because this one doesn't satisfy. It satisfies for a time, and then it goes away. Why does he who wants a bunch of money, when he gets a raise, he feels really good, and then he wants more money because it can't be satisfied in those things? Why is the person who lives licentiously when it comes to sexuality always have more and more sexual conquests, which satisfy for a second, and then all he's left with is shame and despair, and it never fully satisfies? And it's simply because, as the Bible would say, and as St. Augustine would say, that there is this emptiness in the whole of uh, mankind's heart that is only fulfilled by God, is only fulfilled in Christ. Look again at verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, instead of eternal life, there's what? There's wrath and fury. Wrath and fury. Zach, do you believe in a literal hell with conscious eternal torment forever for people that don't know Christ? Yes, I do. Yes, we do at Parkway. Why do we hold that? Because the Bible teaches that very clearly, and all Christians have always held that for all of church history just until the modern era where everybody's just punting on doctrine. The Bible is clear that if there's eternal reward for the righteous, then the corresponding reward for the unrighteous is eternal. And if you say, Zach, man, I don't, I don't like that. I don't like the idea of hell. That's the point. You're not supposed to like the idea of it. If I commit a crime against some temporal being, if I commit a crime against one of you, I get a temporary punishment. You're a temporal being. You're not infinite. My punishment, seven years or whatever it is in prison. But what happens if you commit crimes against an eternal being? The only righteous punishment to that is eternal torment. And this text is saying, for those that are Christians, there's eternal life. For those that are non-Christians, there is actual torment. Look again at verse 8. I want you to see something else interesting in this text. But to those who are self-seeking, now look at this next little, little two phrases here. And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Notice, they still obey something. Everybody obeys something. Everybody has a master. No one is a master of their own faith. Romans 6, 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? There is no not being a slave. If you exist and you're a human, you're a slave to something. You're either a slave to Christ, which is true freedom, or you're a slave to your sin, which is true enslavement. So even the person that says, no, forget this Christianity, I'm an atheist, I make my own decisions. They're still enslaved to their passions. They're still enslaved to their hatred. They're still enslaved to their unforgiveness. They're still enslaved to their sin. And they don't know this, but they're also enslaved to the devil. There is no not being a slave. You will be a slave of something. 
And this text is saying, though they don't obey unrighteousness, they still obey something. They obey unrighteousness. Unrighteousness. So I'll tell you a little story. So Katie and I love watching prison shows. Isn't that weird? We love watching prison shows. So we'll have it on Netflix. We're watching Lockdown or something like that. And on these shows, it's crazy. So they'll pull a huge shank out of somebody's bed that the guy was going to use to murder somebody. And Katie and I look at each other and we're like, he was going to stab him, right? It's interesting. We, We think it's so fascinating. It's super weird, all right? But we really like it. We really find that it's interesting. We watch these shows for two reasons. One, because they're interesting. Two, because I'm convinced that at some point in my ministerial career, I will have to go to prison for preaching the gospel, for preaching what the Bible says about homosexuality or transgenderism or whatever. Eventually, I've got to go to prison, so I've got to get ready now. So I'm doing my push-ups, and I'm doing my research, and I'm learning about how much cigarettes everything is worth. And so I'm getting ready, all right? And we're getting ready to go to prison, okay? If that ever happens, by the way, I encourage you to visit us. Bring us books. Bring us puzzles. Someone bring me a gym hammer, and I will Shawshank Redemption that thing. I'll become friends with the warden. They'll make a movie about it. It'll be awesome, okay? Here's one of the interesting things that we see as we watch these prison shows. Because a lot of these guys are involved in gang activity, even when they get out from behind bars, they're still enslaved. Even when they get out and their, their, their sentence is over and they're put back out into society, they're still taking orders from guys that are still locked up. And if they don't follow those orders, they get killed. There's a sense in which they might think that they're free because they don't see the prison bars, but the inclination of their sin in their heart still makes them want to do these sinful actions, and there's a sense in which they're still enslaved to a greater system. And so I think there's a tendency in our culture to think that I'm not enslaved to anything because I don't see the bars, and they don't realize that everybody's enslaved to something. You're either enslaved to Christ or you're enslaved to your own sin, okay, to your own sin. Verses 9 through 10. So now the text will reverse. Verse 1 was God will judge everyone based on their works, not based on their ethnicity, so there's no partiality. By verse 1, I mean verse 6, the first one that I went through. Then the text is going to say there's reward for the righteous, judgment for the unrighteous, and then the text is going to shift gears and do the exact opposite. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. This, first of all, doesn't mean if you've ever sinned, you're condemned. That would be all of us. The idea is lifestyle. A Christian sins. We sin all the time. We struggle. I've probably sinned a hundred times this morning because sins are not just actions we do. They're bad inclinations uh, of the heart. They're bad inclinations of the mind. They're impure thoughts. They're anger that's unrighteous and these kind of things. It's not just saying if you've ever sinned. It's saying, what is your lifestyle? The Christian walks a lifestyle of continually putting on Christ, realizing their union with Christ, which transforms their action. A lost person does not have that. A lost person does not have that. But what does it mean here when it says that there will be condemnation here for the Jew first and also for the Greek? Here's the idea. When Paul talked about salvation earlier on in Romans, he said that it comes to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. That doesn't mean that Jews are saved in some different way than other people, right? It's not that Jews get in just by being Jews and Jesus is just for the rest of us. It also doesn't mean that now God loves Jews or something more than Gentiles. In fact, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Okay? But you're all one in Christ Jesus. What does it mean when Paul originally is talking about salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek? It means this, that as the gospel goes out, that message goes to the Jews first because God had made promises to the patriarchs. They have the Old Testament law, etc. When this lady comes up to Jesus and wants healing, he says to her, I've come to the lost sheep of Israel. Right? It's going to the Jew first. In the book of Acts, the apostle Paul will start in a synagogue and he'll preach from the Old Testament, and then when they reject him, he says, forget it then. You don't want the gospel? I'm going to the Gentiles, okay? That it goes to the Jew first and also to the Greek or also to the Gentile. So what the Apostle Paul is saying here is this, 
that if the Jew has a priority in the order of salvation, then a Jew also gets that same thing when it comes to condemnation. He's saying you can't just rest in the fact that you're Jewish to think that you're going to escape the judgment of God. If salvation is for the Jew and also for the Greek, then it also means that punishment is for the Jew and also for the Greek. If you have two people and they both break a rule, and one of them knows the rule, but the other one doesn't know the rule, they've both broken it, but there's a sense in which one of them is more culpable because they knew what the rule was that they broke. They knew what the rule was that they broke. Let me give you an example. So I'm from Texas, and I believe that Texas is the greatest state. Okay? That's not in the Bible, but it should be. Okay? It's not in the Bible, but it should be. I believe Texas is the greatest state. Now let's say I'm driving along, and I'm going 105 miles an hour in a school zone. Okay? 105 miles an hour in a school zone. And a Texas police officer pulls me over and says, roll down the window. And I say, don't worry about it, chief. I'm from Texas. He's like, excuse me? I'm from Texas. My dad's from Texas. I love Texas. I own like 900 guns. This is Texas. Everything's going to be okay. He'll be like, why don't you step out of the car? I'm like, no, no, no. You don't have to pull me out of the car. Look, I have a copy of all the laws of Texas right here. I've got it in my car. I'm a Texan. I believe these laws. These are good laws. I've got them right here. I'm going to get taste, all right? I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to get some sort of citation or brought to jail. Something's going to happen. Do you know why? Because I can't appeal to the fact that I'm of a certain ethnicity, from a certain state, or simply have Texas law when I'm breaking it, when I'm breaking it. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's saying, are there some benefits? He'll say this later in Romans. Are there some benefits of being Jewish? He says, sure. You have promises to the patriarchs. You have the Mosaic law, etc. Are there benefits of being from Texas? Amen. There are. But does that mean that you're now excused from following the law? It does not. It does not. That's what the point the Apostle Paul is making here in uh, verses 9 through 10. And then lastly, verse 11. For God shows no partiality. What does that mean? Older translations would say God is not a respecter of persons. What does it mean that God shows no partiality? Let me be clear what that does and doesn't mean because a lot of people are confused on this. This doesn't mean that God loves everyone the same. <gasps> he loves Jacob and he hates Esau. He selects Israel and he doesn't select the other nations. By saying that God shows no partiality, it doesn't mean he loves everyone the same, treats everyone the same. One person's born in a family where they can hear the gospel. Another person's born in a family where they will never hear the gospel. God does many things, but he does not treat everyone the same. What does it mean to say that he doesn't show partiality? It means he uses the same standard of judgment. It means he uses the same standard of judgment. So it doesn't mean that he... It, so the idea is like this. He doesn't care if you're a Jewish sinner or a Gentile sinner if you're still a sinner. It doesn't mean he treats everyone the same. It means that God judges everyone by the same standard. Let me give you an example. Let's again go back to the, the police officer analogy. Let's say for a second that I'm a police officer, which I think I'd make an excellent police officer, but let's say I'm a police officer, and I get a call because there's been a murder. And so I drive over to that murder scene, and the guy who committed the murder is sitting there, and he's sobbing in his hands, and he looks up, and it's my son. Do I feel differently about my son than I do other people? You bet. I love my son way more than I love other people. But does that mean that I don't get to arrest him simply because he's my son? It does not. I still have to arrest him. That's the point that Paul is making. The point Paul is making is not to say that God has not shown uh, some sort of grace or something like that to Israel. It's to say that God will not show partiality when it comes to judgment, when it comes to His standard. If you break the law, you're a lawbreaker, regardless of what ethnicity you are as a lawbreaker, regardless of what gender you are as a lawbreaker, regardless of whether you're Jew or Gentile or whatever that might be as a lawbreaker, the Apostle Paul is saying that God doesn't show partiality. Now, I want to ask you three questions based on this text, and then I want to give you a little example. 
we'll get into the gospel, right? The gospel's coming. There's good news coming in Romans. Hang in there. But I'll give you that in just a second. But I want to ask you three questions, okay? Three things to think about. We're going to put some of these questions, I believe, up uh, on the screen. Here's number one. Do you think that you're saved merely because you belong to some group, okay? Because you're a church member, because your family was a Christian family, because you're Jewish, because you're raised in church, because you're a conservative, because you're an American, do you assume that you're somehow a Christian by osmosis, that you're somehow a Christian by catching it from other people that you're around in groups that are Christians? Is that something that you assume? Because this text is going to shoot that down absolutely, that each one of us give an account for our works. We don't get judged as a team. Verse 2, what evidences, or verse 2, number 2, what evidences in your life can you point to to prove that you have been born again? If I ask somebody in Texas if they're a Christian, they're just going to say yes. Because to them, being a Christian is just something you do on Sunday. You go to church, then you go to gross loopies, then you hang out and watch the cowboy game. That's just what it means to be in Texas, right? I'm not asking you that question. I'm not asking if you identify as a question. Here's what I'm asking you. Could you prove that you were a Christian? What evidences can you point to in your life that shows that you've been regenerated, that shows that you've been born again? This is one of the questions I'll ask when I meet with people that want to be group leaders at Parkway, not, are you a Christian? Of course they'll say yes. What evidences can you give that you're a Christian? Where do you see places where you hate sin, where you love Christ, where you love the Scriptures, where you love other people, where you are convicted when you sin, where Christ is your highest joy, even where you're struggling, you want to be close to Christ? Those are the kind of evidences of the Christian life. What evidences could you point to in your life? Be careful of appealing just simply to the fact that you're Jewish and you have the law for thinking that that's what saves you. And then the third one, the Apostle Paul says that if you don't keep the law, you're damned. And by the way, that's all of us. The Apostle Paul is going to say this very clearly in chapter 3. So we've got to read chapter 2 in context with that. But here's the third question. Do you believe that you are utterly unable to live the righteous life that God demands and therefore have to trust Christ to be your only righteousness? If God says that if you break any of my laws, you're condemned, and I've broken a lot of them, I have no hope apart from Christ. He's my only righteousness. He's he's the only sense of hope that I have. That's it. I have Jesus or I have nothing. Is that true of you for your salvation? Are you just leaning purely into the righteousness of Christ, or is it like Christ does 90%, but you do one little percent? God loves you a little bit because you do or don't do these other things. Are you trusting Christ alone? Solus Christus, are you trusting Christ alone? Now, I want to give you a little uh, illustration to end with before we do communion. Imagine for a second that you are fixing a big truck, right? I don't know anything about fixing trucks. Every time I go to the the mechanic, unless I go to a good one like uh, Brian Tyson here, uh, they will rip me off. They're like, yeah, your flux capacitor is broken. I'm like, dang, how much is that? $9,000. Okay, here you go. I don't know anything about fixing trucks. But say for a second that you are underneath a big truck trying to fix it, and all of a sudden your jack breaks and the truck lands down on you, Okay. You've got maybe 30 seconds to live. You're not strong enough to just bench press that that truck off your chest. That truck is crushing you, and you're going to die if somebody doesn't help you within the next 30 seconds or so. And somebody comes up to you, and they say, push harder. Just push harder. Is that going to work? That's moralism. That's legalism. You cannot lift the truck. But what moralism and legalism says is just try harder. Just push harder. If you follow the route of moralism, you will get crushed and die. Let's say you're being crushed by the truck and someone comes up to you and they say, there is no truck, it's just in your mind, think light thoughts. That's Buddhism, okay? If you go that route, the truck will crush you and you will die. Let's say you're being crushed by a truck and someone comes up to you and they say, who are you to say that you need help? Your truck and my truck are different. That's postmodernism. 
you go that route, the truck crushes you, and you die, okay? Let's say you're being crushed by a truck, and someone comes up to you and says, why don't you self-identify as someone not being crushed by a truck, okay? That's transgenderism. And we talked about this this morning. I'm not making fun. The problem with transgenderism is people really do feel broken because of sin and feel detached from their bodies, but instead of actually dealing with their hearts and helping them, people just start changing body parts. That's transgenderism. That's not the way to get out from under the truck. So you're being crushed by a truck, and someone says, come up and says, despite the fact that the truck is hurting you, it actually doesn't exist. That's atheism, all right? You follow that route, you get crushed by the truck, and you die. Let's say someone comes up, and you're struggling, and you're sweating, and you're going to die, and they say, I'm not really sure if you need help or not. That's agnosticism, where somebody doesn't know what they believe about God. If you follow that route, guess what? The truck still crushes you, and you still die. Let's say you're being crushed by a truck, and someone says, even if you can't lift the truck, I still believe that you can. That's humanism. This idea that we as broken, sinful humans will be able to solve our own problems. You follow that route, the truck crushes you, and you die. Let's say you're being crushed by a truck, and someone comes up to you, and they say, you are the truck. You and the truck are the same thing. That's pantheism, all right? You follow that route, the truck crushes you, and you die. What do you need if you're being crushed by a truck? You need somebody other than you who's stronger than you that can lift that weight off your chest. Guess who that is? Take a wild guess. It's Jesus, right? It's Jesus. What you need as you're being crushed under the weight of the law. We cannot keep the law. The law is good, but it's not good news for us because we break it. As we're crushed under the weight of our sin, as we're crushed under the weight of the law, our only solution is not to try harder, not to follow a different ism of the world. It's to have someone who can keep the law. It's to have someone who can lift the truck come and lift that crushing weight of sin off of our chest and give us life instead of death. If you don't know Christ, you're in verse 8. You're in verse 8. Your primary heart disposition is selfishness. Even when you do good social justice issues, you do those so you can tweet about them and everyone can see how great you are and so you can feel good about yourself. Even those are done out of selfishness. If you are in verse 8, if you're not a Christian, your primary motivation is selfishness and there is judgment waiting. But here's the good news of the gospel. Christ loves you. He has come to forgive you. He has come to give you new life no matter what you've done. So whether you're someone who's a Christian who's trying to earn it, or you're someone who's a non-Christian just walking in sin, Jesus is the solution for wherever you just happen to be this morning. Would you trust Him? Would you cry out to Him? Would you repent before Him? Would you bow the knee? Would you uh, finally, maybe for the first time in your life, call Him Lord and submit to Him? That's what He asks of you out of this text. God's law is good, but it's not good news for people that can't keep it. The good news for people that can't keep it is that God's fixing the world through Christ, and He's offered a full pardon for anybody who will but submit to King Jesus. That's what we offer this morning. Let's pray as the guys come forward who are helping serve communion. <clears throat> Father, we thank You for just this, uh, this beautiful day to come before You and uh, listen to Your Word. Uh, we thank You for uh, where it corrects us and it hurts. We thank You that You only discipline those You accept as Your children. We also thank You where it heals us, where it offers us an encouraging word of the gospel. So I pray for anybody in here who is struggling under the weight of their sin, thinking that they're somehow saved because they simply assume they're a Christian or belong to a church or possess a Bible, yet are breaking its rules, which is all of us. And so I pray for grace for those people. I pray for people being crushed by the truck that feel like you're just asking them to push harder. I thank you that you're never asking us that. You're never asking us to push harder. You're never asking us to make more bricks using less straw. What you're doing is you're providing a solution. You're providing salvation. You're providing someone who can lift the truck off of our chest. We thank you for that. We love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.